The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We're resuming our study, looking at this great picture that our Lord gives us of the Christian life. And before we begin, let's go once again to the throne of grace in prayer. I invite you to to bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would meet us here, that as we study the Word of God, that we would know your presence and that you would minister to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me as your vessel, and I pray all this for your sake. Amen. Well, this great picture, this epic picture of the Christian life doesn't just come out of nowhere. If you'll recall in John chapter 14, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples in what is called the upper room discourse, and he gives them instructions about what their lives will be like, what their ministry will be like once he goes to heaven. And you'll recall famous words Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A Greek word is zoe. It's a common word. Uh, people even name their kids Zoe. That's where it comes from. It's is that word, and it means life. And what Jesus does is he follows up in John chapter 15 with a word picture to explain what that life is like. My mother once told me that a picture is worth a thousand words. And you know this to be true, that stories or a a painting stays with you, and it speaks a message. One of the the paintings that I've I've looked at quite a bit recently is that Norman Rockwell painting of the guy who's standing there at a town hall meeting, and he's wearing that that Carhartt tanker jacket. Have you all seen this? And everybody's sitting around him and looking up, and he's standing there, and he's expressing his opinion. He's expressing what he believes to be true. And you can look at that painting, and it just says so much. You you look at the admiration of the people that are standing around him. You look at his face, and you see the conviction. You look at his clothes, and it says, I'm an everyday man, but yet my voice is important. That's what pictures do. And so Jesus gives us in John chapter 15 this wonderful picture of the Christian life. This amazing picture that he is the vine and we are the branches. And what Jesus is communicating is that the life of Christianity, the life of Christ, is lived in connection to him and only in connection to him. And he takes this agricultural metaphor to say, look, the degree that your life is connected to Christ is the degree that your life will produce fruit. And that's the goal, that your life will produce Christian fruit. I remember one time we went out to one of Grace Anna's brothers, uh, his, his wedding. She's got four brothers, so this one was getting married in California. And we got an Airbnb, and this Airbnb had an orange tree in the backyard. And it just so happened that as we were there, this orange tree was producing oranges. And it was, it was an amazing thing because what would happen is in the morning, we'd pick up the oranges and put them aside. And then we would come back at the end of the day. And guess what? There would be oranges everywhere. You couldn't even drive the, the car and park it on the driveway without smashing oranges. So we'd get out, pick up the oranges again, just so we could come and, and park the car there. And we're eating, you know, I'm eating more oranges than I've ever eaten before in my life um, because they're free, you know. It's like they're right here. But in, in, a, in a picture, 
Jesus is saying that is what the Christian life is supposed to look like for us, that you are to produce fruit, and it's just everywhere that, that your life produces the graces of Christ so that it is so evident not only to you but to everyone around you. Now, what is that fruit that we are to produce? Well, we're, the, it's very clear from Scripture uh, what spiritual fruit is to look like. One, it's spiritual virtues. It's the virtues of Christ in your life. That's Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice that Paul says that the fruit is singular. It's not fruits. It's not like, oh, well, I have love today and I don't have patience today. It's, it's collective. This is the fruit that you produce, all of it. Self-control, love, meekness, kindness, goodness, all of it should be produced to a various extent in your life. Second, the New Testament describes the fruit as acceptable worship. Acceptable worship, that your life produces acceptable worship to God. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Third, the fruit that we produce are souls that are one to Christ. Yes, God is the one who saves people. God is the one who regenerates the soul, but God uses men and women as his messengers. Colossians 1.6 says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So one of the fruits that should be evident in your life is that you are bringing people to Christ. And then fourth is peace, peace. James 3.18 says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this peace is brought about by the gospel and by the virtues of Christ in your life. So you kind of have to ask yourself the question, this is a great question, is what does your wake look like? You know, your wake is the, is the, is the waves behind the boat, what, what follows the boat. What is your wake like? When, you, when you're somewhere in a room, at, 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 in a company, wherever it is, is peace following behind you? Or is it just turbulence following behind you? What's your wake like? Are you producing peace? So these are the fruits that we are to produce. And it's really important, though, because in this, in this picture that Jesus gives us, he gives us the secret to produce fruit. Uh, there was a book many years ago that a guy named Bruce Wilkinson wrote called The Secrets of the Vine. Secrets of the Vine. This is the same guy who wrote the book The Prayer of Jabez. Y'all remember that? Prayer of Jabez, everybody had it. People had stickers on their car, you know, I'm praying this prayer, whatever. Okay, um, he wrote a follow-up book called The Secrets of the Vine. I never read it, never read it, but I love the title. I, I love the thought, and I think what, what he was doing is he was going deep in John 15 and saying, okay, this is, this is the secret to how to produce fruit in your life. So I'm gonna save you, you don't need to go buy the book. You don't need to go buy the book. Don't, don't go by the book. I'm going to give you the secrets. I'm going to give you the secrets of the vine, okay? Because it's all right here. Save you, save you the expense. All right, here, here in a nutshell is, is the secret, okay? Look at verse 1. I am the true vine. And, of course, that I am is one of Jesus's I am statements, a statement of deity. This is the last of the seven I am statements. And Jesus says, I am this true vine, and we unpacked what that means two weeks ago. But, but let's focus in on the, the picture that he's using. Now look at verse 5. Skip down and look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. 
So there's really two components of this statement, okay? The first is, is that the Christian, the true Christian, is united to Christ as a branch. He is the vine, and we are the branches. A spiritual union is brought about. How is that union brought about? Faith. You are united to Christ through faith. Faith and works? No, 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 because then it's not faith. You are united to Christ by faith and faith alone. Did you get that? Don't, don't miss that. Faith is what joins you to Christ. A mystical union takes place in the power of the Holy Spirit where you are joined to Christ through faith. That's step one. That is how, and we're going to see, the, the branch is grafted into the vine. But once the branch is grafted into the vine, what inevitably happens with every true Christian? You bear fruit. It's the hard and fast rule. If you are a genuine believer, you will bear fruit. This is what Jesus said. This is the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, uh, verse 8. He said, other seeds fell on good soil, and they produced grain or fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. The evidence of true faith is that fruit is produced. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, jot this verse down, Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So you know the genuine believer by the fruit that is produced. Matthew 12, 33, Jesus says again, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You think Jesus cared about this? Absolutely he did. The apostle James says this, someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Saving faith always works. It always bears fruit. Because if you are truly united to Christ, he produces that fruit in your life. He produces that fruit in your life. And I emphasize this because there's a lot of professors in the American church. A lot of professors. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. Uh, my, my, my grandfather's a pastor. I, I went to that Young Life camp and I, and I made a decision for Christ. Great. That, that's, those are all great things. Is there fruit in your life? Well, I haven't been in, in the church in three years. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been walking in holiness. I haven't been walking in purity. I don't really have a desire to study the Word of God. What do you think? What, what would Jesus say? Where's the fruit? Show me the fruit. James says, show me your faith by your work. So this is very important, very important that we understand this, that we get this right. Oh, Jesus gives us an interesting detail. Look back at verse 1. He says, my father, this is God the Father. He says, the father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser. That word is the Greek word georgos. It, it means farmer. My father's the farmer. My, farmer. my father is the one who is tending. He, he is over the vine and the various branches. And um, what farmers are concerned about at the end of the day is the fruit that is produced from their crop. Talk to any farmer. Any farmer. I, I grew up working what we, we called Castleberry Farms up in the panhandle of Texas. And you could, you could plant, we, we did alfalfa hay, and, and we sold it to rich horse farmers in Florida. But you could plant the hay right, you could do everything right. And we would harvest it 2 a.m. when the humidity was just perfect, the way they wanted it. 
You could do everything right, but if the harvest doesn't come through in the end, guess what? You've got a big loan to the bank and you're in trouble. Because what matters, what always matters to the farmer is the harvest at the end, always. Let me, let me give you a couple examples of this where this word is used. 2 Timothy 2.6, it is the hardworking farmer, same word, who ought to have his first share of the crops. James 5.7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer, the Georgos, waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. What the farmer cares about is the fruit, the fruit that is produced. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the father cares very much about how the vine is tended, how the branches are tended, so that fruit is produced. Now, we began our study of this passage two weeks ago, and and I said that we were going to look at six qualities or six principles of how the Lord does this, of how this works. And we covered three of them two weeks ago, and I'm just going to briefly cover those first three just by way of reminder and review. But first, Jesus talks about the purification of the vine, the purification of the vine. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, the farmer, he takes away. This, I think, with, without hesitation, is in reference to Judas. This is in reference to those who profess to be Christians who are not genuine Christians. That's what Jesus is addressing. Uh, the, the word that Jesus uses to describe being taken away is arrow, which means to be cut off just to be, to be cut off and removed. Jesus uses the same word to describe what Satan does to the seed that falls on the hard path in Mark 4.15, that Satan comes and he arrows the word, he takes the word away. And what Jesus is saying here is that a false believer in the long run will be exposed that God the Father exposes them and he removes them. And the way that they're removed is either by a, a compromise of their profession or a compromise of their witness. They say, I no longer believe that the Bible is the word of God. I no longer believe that Christ is the son of God. I no longer believe that it's necessary for me to be faithful to my spouse. And they leave. And they're exposed to be what they never claimed to be, which was uh, they're, they're exposed to be a, a false believer. John says this, write down this verse, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they were all not of us. So the father does that. He removes the false professors. And then second, second part of verse two is the pruning of the vine. The pruning of the vine. And this is what the father does to the genuine Christians, the believers that do bear fruit, is he prunes them. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, this is the Christian, he prunes that it may bear fruit more fruit. You see the farmer's desire there, the father's desire that that fruit be born in our lives and and pruning. Fun word or hard word? Hard word. You know, pruning, you know, if you work in a garden, you, you're you're cutting the you're cutting the branch back. Sometimes you're cutting leaves back, you're cutting fruit back. You're 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 cutting the plant down so that that the plant's energy will be more directed so in the long run, it will produce more fruit. And so what God often does in, in the life of the Christian is he brings trials to bear in your life. He brings situations and suffering and difficulty into your life and it's for the purpose of making you more like Christ. And what he does in those situations is he confronts you and encourages you with his word, with the word of God. Have you ever been in a situation 
unique. You've never faced anything like it before. And all of a sudden, you remember a verse, and it takes on a brand new meaning in your life. You're like, oh, that's what that verse means. Now I know how it applies. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So when you're going through that moment, all of a sudden the word of God hits you and, and God the Holy Spirit begins to do that work of pruning in your heart as you're facing that situation. And it's all for this purpose of bearing more fruit. So who said the Christian life was easy, right? God's pruning you along the way. Third is the grafting of the vine. This is how branches are attached to the vine. That would be, in Paul's illustration in Romans chapter 11, the Gentiles, what he calls unnatural branches. But we all have to be grafted into Christ, into the vine. Look at verse 3. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Using context, John 13, Jesus says, talking to the disciples, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Clean is synonymous for being saved. Clean is synonymous for saving faith. And he says, but not every one of you, because Judas was still present. He says, you, the 11, y'all are clean, but not every one of you is clean. So clean is synonymous for being a true Christian. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 26, that Christ might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus' point is this, is that the way that you are grafted into Christ, the way that God produces faith in you is through the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ, Romans chapter 10. 1 Peter 1, 23, jot that verse down. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So how does God make Christians? How does God make a branch attached to the vine? He makes a new Christian through the proclamation of the gospel, of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then God creates faith in you, and now you are attached to the vine. Clear as day? Okay. Because if you don't understand that, then we can't go to the next, the, the, the next part. Which, which is so important, which is the ongoing life of the Christian, okay? So God attaches you to the vine through his word. And then we have point four, which is the fellowship of the vine. The fellowship of the vine. So look at verse four. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus gives this imperative with a condition. Underline abide in me and I in you. Jesus says you abide in me and then I will abide in you. And then if that happens, you will bear fruit. That's essentially what he says with this next sentence. He says, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide with me. So here's the picture. So a, a Christian, they're attached to the vine through faith, through the word of God. But here's the imperative for the Christian. This is what we have to pay attention to. Jesus says, you remain in me, and I in you. The way that a branch receives life from the vine is simply by being attached to the vine. Simply by being attached to the vine. And what happens with a branch is that sap, sap flows through the vine, and then that sap flows into the branches. And then that sap produces leaves on the branches, that sap produces flowers on the branches, that, that sap produces offshoots, that sap produces fruit. And so the degree that the branch is attached to the vine is the degree that fruit is produced. 
So Jesus' imperative is this. It's the Greek word meno, and it just means to remain or continue or stay. He says, you keep remaining in me. That's all you have to do. You have to stay in me, and then I will be in you, and then you will produce this fruit. But you have to be vigilant. You have to be vigilant on your part to stay, to stay, to abide. Let me give you a quote from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray said this. He said, Many believers pray and long very earnestly for the filling of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ and wonder that they are not making more progress. The reason is often this. The I in you cannot come because the abide in me is not maintained. The I in you cannot come because the abide in me is not maintained. What he's saying is a lot of, a lot of Christians aren't following this imperative. They're not abiding in Christ. Now, as I study this, I think, you know, the, the key question then is, well, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What, what does that look like? Let me give you two things. First, continual dependence. Continual dependence. Notice this emphasis on dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus makes. Verse 4, he says, you cannot bear fruit, neither can you, unless you abide in me. And look at verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So Jesus reiterates this point of dependence upon him, dependence upon him for everything. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. A.W. Pink said, it is the consciousness of my helplessness. It is the realization that severed from him, I can do nothing. So the moment in the, in the Christian life that you think that you can do it on your own, when that moment of pride gets in, you think, you know, I've been evangelizing for a long time. I can do this. Th that, that moment that you think, you know, I've mastered this is the moment that you are walking in your own power and not the power of Christ. And apart from him, you can do nothing you can do nothing, and you will not have the fruit because Christ will not give his glory to another. Christ builds his church. Let me give you another quote, this one from D.A. Carson. He said, Continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life, this is the sine qua non of spiritual fruitfulness. The Christian or Christian organization that expands by external accretion, that merely apes Christian conduct and witness, but, but is not impelled by life within, brings forth dead crystals, not fruit. So the principle is true both of Christians and churches. It's, it, this is a hard and fast rule in Christianity. The degree to which you are dependent upon Christ for the fruit is the degree that you will produce genuine fruit. The degree in which you walk in your own power and strength is the degree that you quench the Holy Spirit's power in your life. And that's why Paul said, actually, he said, it's when I'm weak is when I'm, what, strong. You're like, whoa, why, why is that? Because he said, when, it, when I encountered my own weakness, that's when I relied even more on the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you got to get you out of the way and say, Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, produce this fruit. I am dependent on you. How do you think this dependence is expressed. If you were to say, okay, what, what does dependence look like in the life 
of an individual or the life of the church? How would you describe it? Well, I think immediately, dependence upon the word of God. What does Peter say? Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. We've got a six-month-old in our house. He wakes up crying. Give me milk. I want milk. Give it to me. I don't want anything else. I don't want dad to, you know, do little games with me. Nah, don't give me any of that. Give me the milk. Peter says that's the Christian's relationship to the word of God, that you need it. Like a newborn babe, you long for the word. You never get past the point where you say, you know what, I've arrived and I don't need, I don't need God's word. You never do. You live from verse to verse. And also prayer. Prayer is an expression of dependence upon God. Prayer is saying, I cannot measure up, but I know who can. God does. So the degree that we're on our knees before God is the degree that we're, we're asking God to work and we're seeing Christ work in us. And this is true of the church. It's very simple. Do you want to see Christ's power in the church? Dedicate yourself to the word of God and get on your knees in prayer. And you're going to see the Holy Spirit move in power. But it's got to be genuine dependence. We've got to say, God, you do the work. You bring revival. You bring people to faith. You do the work of holiness in our lives. It has to be that genuine dependence upon God. And then secondly, it needs to be continual obedience. Continual obedience. Look, abiding is not mystical, okay? It's not, oh, I'm, I'm in a room uh, doing some transcendental meditation and I'm abiding. That's not abiding. Abiding is very simple. It's obedience. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If, if you hold fast to my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love. And then he, he says, you, you want an example of that? Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. He says, that's what it looks like to abide, is that you remain in my commands, that you, you walk steadfastly in the words that I have taught you. John 14, 21 said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The apostle John says in 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him or abiding in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. It's very simple. Very simple. Hard to do. Hard to do, but very simple. I remember I told y'all a couple weeks ago I was, when I was in Jerusalem last year, I ran into a pastor from Dallas I used to go listen to growing up named Todd Wagner, who, who started Watermark Church. And we were just sitting in the lobby of the King David Hotel, and, and as preachers do, we started talking about text. And for some reason, he brought up John 15. And he said, you know, I, I've studied this. I think this is so important for Christians to grasp, that this abiding thing, it looks a lot like obedience. It's not just some far-out thing that we go, what does it mean? Huh, very simple. Are you obeying Christ? Are we obeying him? Are we walking in his statutes? Are we walking in his ways? So if we're to break this down, abiding in him is continual dependence upon him for power and continual obedience to him in his, in his word as we walk. 
And we gotta get those two things right, and then we will be abiding, and then we will bear fruit. I was reading a letter that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote to his daughter in 1948. This is what he said. Remember that to be comes before to do. That is where we all fail. Our business is to make ourselves such instruments as shall fit and meet for the master's use. He always tells such people how and where and when he wants to use them. You prepare yourself, and he will then show you what he wants you to do. To be comes before to do. And to be, you need to be in dependence upon him, and you need to be walking in obedience. And so we've got some work to do. That's the self-assessment. That's the self-assessment. Are you walking in obedience? Or is there something in your life, a known sin, that you are feeding on the side? Jesus says this, those whom I love I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus there is talking about the Christian. He's saying, hello, repent, put the sin away, because in so doing, you're quenching the fellowship. You're not abiding in me, and I'm not abiding in you, because you want this sin fetish on the side. Repent, open the door, and then we will enjoy fellowship. Or we need to repent of our pride in thinking that we can pull this off, that we're smart enough, that we have the ingenuity and the wisdom and the, and the, the means and the resources to pull ministry off in our own power. Paul says this, jot down this reference, 2 Timothy 2.1. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives him instructions on the ministry. Then he says, entrust to faithful witnesses, uh, and they will entrust to others also. Then he tells him what to do. But first he says, you first be strengthened. John says, John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So this really is the secret to producing fruit. It's dependence and it's obedience. Look at verse five. Jesus reiterates it. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever remains in me and I in him, he, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. So we need to press into that press into dependence and obedience, and then we will bear the fruit. Now, fifthly, Jesus gives a warning, the warning of the vine. So, so far, we've seen the purification of the vine, the pruning of the vine, the grafting of the vine, the fellowship of the vine, and now the warning of the vine. Verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So this is a, a serious warning to professors, to all of us, those who claim the name of Christ. He says, look, if you, you claim to be me, to be in me, you claim to be connected to Christ. But if there's no true fellowship, if there's no real connection, if there's no fruit, here, here is the result at the end of the day, is that you will be thrown away like a branch, and in the end, you will be thrown into the fire and burned. Now, fire in the Jewish world is always representative of one thing, 
one thing. It's not hard. Judgment. Always. Always. In the teachings of our Lord, it always represents judgment. Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of it discourse, Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil's and his angels. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 6, 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now remember, Jesus is talking to who? The 11, right? The true disciples. The true disciples. But he's giving them this warning. This warning. This, this is a scary warning. He's talking about hell. He's talking about eternal judgment in the end. He's saying, if, if you go the way of Judas, where you don't produce fruit, you need to know something. This is the end game for you, that, that you will be thrown into the eternal fire. I recently saw this parenting article from a Christian, on a Christian website. And the parenting article said, talking about uh, how to, to raise kids, it said, don't threaten the children with discipline, is what the article said. But you want to do the positive. You want, you want to only encourage, you know, and say, okay, you know, at that a boy, you know, you did this right. Let's, let's reward the positive, but let's not threaten with discipline. And I took a step back after I read that. I said, you know what? That's not what God does. That's not what Christ does. Christ says, look, you need to know something. If you don't bear the fruit, you will be thrown into the fire. Wake up. Wake up. Don't just keep going through your life. Take stock. Are you bearing fruit and keeping with repentance or are you not? Because you need to know that the end game is this. You need to be warned. Is that a loving thing to do to tell the truth? It is. To withhold the truth is unloving. He says, you need to know that in the end, if you don't bear fruit, you will be judged. Is he saying that we're saved by works? No. He's saying that true faith produces the fruit. That true saving faith in Christ always produces the fruit. But then he, he gives the sober judgment and he follows it up by six and finally, the rewards of the vine the rewards of the vine. Let's look at these briefly. The first reward is in verse seven, and that is the reward of intercessory prayer. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So do you see the two conditions for answered prayer? He says, first, if you abide in me, and then second, my words abiding in you. Those are the two conditions for answered prayer. Now, earlier in John 14, 13, Jesus said, we also must ask in his name, which means ask in accordance to his character. He says, John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if we meet these criteria, Jesus says he will honor that prayer. So the problem that many Christians have in their prayer life is twofold. They're either praying without abiding in Christ or they're praying outside of the will of God. They're not praying in accordance with what Jesus has taught us to pray. Spurgeon said, if we have no ear for Christ, he will have no ear for us. James says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So if we are abiding in Christ and our prayers are informed by the word of God, 
then Jesus says, I will hear and I will answer that prayer. And that's why, have you known some people and it seems like God always hears their prayers? You're like, man, wow, that's amazing how God answers her prayers. Why does, and, and people just start to flock to that person. Kind of like Thomas in our church. You know, people flock to that person. They're like, will you pray for this? Will you pray for this? And it's not that that person has some better direct access to God. That's not the case. But it could be that they are, have a life of abiding and then they pray in accordance to the word of God. James says, James 5, that the prayers of a righteous man, what? Availeth much. So you wanna be that person that you are abiding and you are praying in accordance with the word of God. And then Christ says, I will hear and I will answer that prayer. J.C. Ryle said, the nearer a man lives to Christ and the closer his communion with him, the more effectual his prayers will be. The second reward that Jesus promises is assurance of salvation. Look at verse eight. By this, so by the fruit that is produced, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And then look at this last phrase. And so prove to be my disciples. You prove to be my disciples. You pass the lit litmus test that you are indeed my disciple when you see the fruit that is being produced. Jesus says in, in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What Jesus is saying here is as you see the fruit that's produced in your life and as other people see the fruit that is, is produced in your life, you kind of take a step back and you say, oh my goodness, I wasn't loving like this before. I wasn't patient like this before. I didn't have the self-control before to turn my eyes. Where, where is this coming from? What's going on here? I didn't have this ability to communicate the gospel before, and I'm seeing people come to faith through evangelism. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is you're seeing the fruit. And as you see the fruit, you know what the Holy Spirit does? As he testifies in your soul that you're a genuine Christian. You say, oh my, wow, God's at work in my life. I'm seeing the fruit. And then the proof is there. So the Christian that has a high degree of fruit Genu gen uh, generally speaking, has a high degree of assurance of salvation because they don't have to think about it. You see what I'm saying? Now, we can all have assurance of salvation based on the promises of, of God. But when you see the fruit there, you know. You know, you know that you know. And Jesus says this brings great glory to God. And then the third blessing or reward of the vine is the experience of joy. What a wonderful truth to end with. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, very simple explanation of abiding, that you're keeping the commands, you're abiding in his love, and uh, what Jesus is referring to here is the experience of God's love. Obviously, God's love for the believer is unconditional. God has demonstrated his love for you. But that doesn't mean that you always experience God's love the same way. The, the degree that you remain in Christ and abide in him is the degree that you experience the communion with Christ and that close fellowship and intimacy of his love. And what this produces in you is verse 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So Jesus had the, the warning, right? He, he, did, he, he has the warning. He said, you produce fruit, uh, otherwise you need to be warned that you're gonna go to hell. But then he has the positive. This is the blessing. 
that you will have joy. Does anybody want joy? I mean, is anybody here just saying, don't give me that, I don't want it. I don't want it. I, don't, I just want to live my life as a recluse and just be stodgy and just work Sudoku puzzles and have no fun. Is anybody, is anybody signing up for that? I, I mean, but what, what the world says, okay, the way that I get joy is by just following fleeting pleasures. And that isn't it either because that's hollow and, and, it, and, it's, and it ends up empty and Satan deceives you. And Jesus says, look, I know it sounds counterintuitive that obedience and abiding brings the greatest joy. What joy does he describe? Look at the text. Look at, look at verse 11. The joy of Christ, that Christ's joy, he says, is in you, and then your joy is full. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy, and that is the life of a Christian. It's that you, you don't think that simple obedience to Christ will bring the greatest joy, but it does. That joy just overwhelms you. It surprises you. It, it sneaks up on you, and it just fills your life with the greatest happiness to know that you are one with Christ and walking in his love and abiding in his joy. It, it is a marvelous thing. The greatest life is the Christian life. I want to close with a quote. This is from my great uncle, who was a preacher, the Cajun preacher. His name was Antoine Valdetero. And this week I was reading one of his commentaries that I inherited when he died. And I was reading his commentary, J.C. Ryle's Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. And he had this quote written in the margin, and he had it dated, February 28th, 1962, 62 years ago. Here's what he said. Happiness comes as a result of holiness. No sin-stained soul is happy in God's presence. End quote. You see, when we abide, when we obey, when we're dependent, then we find that we're truly happy and have the joy of the Lord as our strength. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would abide, that we would walk in dependence, that we would walk in obedience, and that in all things we would honor you with our lives. We pray, Lord, for those, Lord, who are not even a branch, who have not even expressed faith in Christ, who have not trusted you at your word, who have not believed the gospel, the good news that Christ died to save sinners. We pray, Lord, that they would hear the word of God today and believe and trust and be saved and that they would become a branch that bears much fruit. We pray, Lord, for this church, that we would be a church that bears great fruit because we as a church are dependent upon the word of God and dependent in prayer upon your power and that we walk in obedience to your commands. We pray, Lord, that we would do this simply. We pray this humbly, and we pray this all, Lord, for your glory. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.